Good day, everybody. This is Kim Nicolaitis with Advent Christian Voices, uh, bringing you a message once again from uh, Honolulu, Waikiki, actually. And glad to be with you and grateful for all of you folks out there. I really appreciated the comments I uh, received from my last uh, broadcast, and uh, I'm, I'm always encouraged whenever uh, I find anyone that has... Uh, benefited in any way from anything that I may uh, say and do. So please let me know if you have any questions, concerns, or comments. Uh, I really do appreciate that. <clears throat> well, I hope you all enjoyed a wonderful uh, Easter celebration. And today I had a little message I wanted to share with you concerning that, the resurrection. And uh, actually, this is going to be similar to a message I have preached uh, a few years ago when I was a chaplain uh, forward for U.S. forces in Iraq um, on Easter Sunday. And it's taken from the text of John 20, uh, verses 1 through 23. So why don't I start by just reading through those verses, and then we'll jump right into the message. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, and following him, went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting there, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord and I don't know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, he turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of the first day of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. 
Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you receive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Amen. And Lord, I just pray you would bless this message to whoever may be listening. Okay, when Jesus rose from the grave, he did so in what is translated in the Bible as a spiritual body. That doesn't mean that the resurrection body he had was not physical in nature, but that it was no longer simply a natural body. His new resurrection body was derived from his natural incarnate body, in a sense similar to that of an oak tree that is derived from an acorn after it had been planted in the ground. It was the same body, only it had been radically transformed into a supernatural body. It possessed attributes which were completely new and infinitely superior in every respect. It was sown in weakness, raised in power. It was sown in dishonor, raised in glory. It was sown corruptible, it was raised uh, incorruptible. Sown immor- and immortal, <laughs> it was raised immortal and indestructible. And I could go on and on to enumerate many of the new and amazing qualities which our Lord Jesus now possessed in his new supernatural and spiritual body. But I will just take the time to list a couple here. For instance, just the fact that he was able to appear in a moment as if out of nowhere and disappear just as fast. Or that he was now able to walk through solid oak doors or walls as if they didn't exist. Simply because... When compared to the uh, immortal nature and structure of his new resurrected body, anything of mere temporal construction can only seem as evanescent or a vanishing mist, comparably speaking. The tangible, solid reality of the resurrection body was, was so much more real that everything else seemed relative to it as if it was hardly more than just a mist. And so that is the kind of body that we can be, we can expect that we will receive as well, because the the scripture says that when we see him, we will be uh, like him. So uh, the question then becomes, uh, Jesus obviously in his, in his uh, resurrected body was uh, superior in just about every imaginable way to the previous uh, body of weakness and humility that he was willing to assume for our sakes. So one might think that in view of these uh, attributes, however, the new resurrection body which Jesus now possessed would not still be torn and scarred as it apparently was, but that it would have been made completely new. Surely if Jesus had the power to be raised from the dead with such a gloriously new body, he surely also had the power, uh, had he wanted to, to eliminate any remnants of the scars that he had had previously obtained. That he had not then, and still does not now, have any such intention of eliminating some of the scars he obtained is also obvious from the fact that the picture we see of him, for instance, in the book of Revelation, the revelation uh, of Jesus Christ as the only one who is worthy to open the seven seals of the scrolls in heaven was as that of a lame that, lamb that had been slain. 
the visibility of his death was so, somehow something that was and is still to be portrayed, even in heaven, in all of his glory and indeed is perhaps something that contributes no small degree of authentication to that glory as it is assessed and admired in the minds and hearts of those in attendance at that scene in heaven. And so they remain as visible reminders to us of just what he had done, in fact, in order to redeem us and to redeem all the rest of the fallen world. And also unavoidably, they remain as well as reminders to us what we had done to him, the one who is chiefly responsible for giving us life and redeeming that life for us to boot, as well as giving us all of the other blessings that accompany such a redeemed life. Well, there are numerous other reasons that uh, are available for us to consider for why uh, Jesus decided that he was going to keep these um, scars on his body. Uh, for instance, about 150 years ago in Britain, there arose an individual who claimed to be none other than the Lord Jesus himself, having returned to the earth. This man, as incredible as it might seem, uh, actually drew quite a following around him. In response to hearing about this person, though, the uh, celebrated blind uh, composer Francis Crosby from New York wrote the beautiful hymn, I will know him <clears throat> by the nail prints in his hands. Of course, this had the anticipated effect of taking the wind out of these, this imposter's claims and quickly dispersing the crowds that he had amassed. Well, as we look at the passage for today, we discover yet another reason for this decision to retain the scars uh, on his immortal body. And that, that reason is clearly so that there will be no question in the apostles' minds about exactly what he means when he informs them about the nature of the new mission of, of which he is about to send them on. If there is ever a place, and there are plenty of places, I suppose, in the Bible, where uh, that reveals something to us of the incredible sense of humor which our Lord has. This is certainly one of them. In the Psalms, the scripture tells us that the Lord is sitting on his throne and laughing heartily as he takes in some of the misadventures of his creatures. It's obvious that God takes extreme pleasure in surprising people, and the bigger the surprise, the more pleasure he evidently derives from it. I mean, sometimes I think that God has this incredible childlike nature, like a little child playing hide and seek. You, you might be able to remember. Uh, when you were a child, and I'm sure if you can, you remember that you love to play that game as well. I think some of us, most of us perhaps lost something there, something precious when we grew up, a sense of adventure, sense of awe and wonder at the prospects of simply discovering something new about the world and those living here. We're lost. We lost that sense when we assumed that there wasn't that much more about this life that we had yet to learn. Well, I can tell you that God still has some things up his sleeve that's going to surprise you. In fact, perhaps the one thing about which I feel most confident in telling you this today is that God has some big surprises waiting just for you. We serve a God who has a very merry disposition in that regard. I mean, you just have to try to picture these guys, big husky fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, all huddled together behind locked doors, cowering in their fear and trepidation about the prospects of shortly being all rounded up by the Jewish leadership, which for all intents and purposes had appeared to have won the day hands down. I mean, days earlier, it seems all they could find time to do was argue amongst themselves about who was going to be the greatest. 
in the kingdom of uh, heaven. They had envisioned Jesus as setting up. Apparently, their concept of the kingdom of God, which Jesus was establishing, was far cry from that which was to be the case. Either that or they sure put their money on the wrong horse. So apparently, when all of a sudden Jesus appears right in their midst, they're speechless. <laughs> but should they have been really? What? What? Was this surprise not just, in fact, like uh, what they should have been expecting all along from Jesus, knowing the way he enjoyed playing such practical jokes on them in the past? I mean, like almost scaring them to death in the middle of the night one time when he came to them walking on the water after they'd just been battling the wind and waves for hours, or like letting them fish all night for nothing one time and before sending them one more time to fish and receiving more than they'd ever seen before in one place in their whole lives. Or like turning so much water into wine one time at a wedding that the whole town could not possibly imbibe it in a whole month without having everyone get drunk. Or like seeing it when he sees a dozen invalids all lying around a pool of water that is supposed to have special healing qualities. He chooses to heal the only one there who would prefer to remain crippled so that he wouldn't have to worry about taking care of himself. Or how he used to Go around on the Sabbath healing people born blind or crippled for life, seemingly just to infuriate the religious leadership. Or how about the time he shouted at this corpse who had been dead and buried for four days already? It actually woke up. He actually woke up, I should say. You know, when you consider the testimony of Lazarus that he must have had during his lifetime after that experience, it's no wonder the Jewish leaders tried so hard to kill him. Today, if you were to go to the island of Cyprus, he's resting there. He had to leave his home in Bethany on account of the threats to his life. Oh, but how grateful Cyprus is now to have him. His grave is probably the greatest tourist attraction they've ever enjoyed in the 19th century since it's, he finally was buried there for his second time. Well, I could go on to mention several other recorded surprises that Jesus was instrumental in orchestrating, like stilling the storms before they were about to capsize, be capsized, or satisfying the appetites of a thousand hungry people with a loaf of bread the size of a biscuit, and on and on it goes. But the point I'm making here is that anyone who was aware of the tactics of Jesus just had to know that he was always up to something. He would always go to great lengths just to create an environment in which people would all be expecting things to occur in just such a way, according to their own preconceived notions of reality. And then out of the blue, he would fool them almost as if to say, hey, I told you, but you just wouldn't believe me. When are you going to start believing me? Yes, I would think that by now Jesus would have acquired quite some notoriety as being the, the prankster of this sort. And this, of course, has to be the biggest surprise of all. Hold off with the most amazing effect. But you must consider, of course, that the preparations for this prank, if you will, had been in the making now for centuries. In fact, they've, they've been in the preparation stages for millennia, ever since God had made the promise to Eve in her, that in her offspring there will be a deliverer, one who would eventually crush the head of the serpent, and implying by so doing to set them free from being subjected to his deceitful schemes, the subjection they had succumbed to as a result of believing his lies in the first place and acting upon them. Now, they should have known better in the first place because the lies they chose to believe were contrary to what God's word had already taught them. Had they sufficient faith, faith rather, in the word of God to begin with, Satan would never have been able to deceive them as he did. So the problem really stems from their lack of having sufficient faith in what God says. And in order to have faith in that, one first has to know 
what that is, of course. And in order to know what that is, one first has to pay attention when he says something. So since that time, God has been speaking to us primarily through his word, but also through all of his other creation as well, and pointing us to his this deliverer who was to come. If the disciples had been listening to that, as well as to what Jesus himself said, by and by observation of what his style doing things was, they really should not have been so surprised at all. But they were. Why? Well, for one, because the Bible tells us that God chose the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the mighty, and the base things of the world and the things that are despised, God has chosen, and the things that are not to bring to nothing, the things that are. Why? Simply because, <clears throat> excuse me, simply because it's his intention that no flesh will ever be able to boast before him. So when we look at these disciples Jesus picked, we have to admit, they're not among the best and the brightest of the lot. It just took a little more time for them to get with the program. Just the fact that these were the ones through whom God was going to change the world sends a signal to us that it is only because of the fact that the Holy Spirit was at work in their lives, that they were ever going to be able to get anything done. It was really God at work in them. And if God could do that through them, just imagine what could he do with us if we'd only be willing to yield our lives to him and to trust him. The other reason why God chose these men as the ones to be uh, the primary witnesses of the death and resurrection of his son was, as, I'm alluding, as I alluded to earlier, that they were now going to have to seal their testimony of those events with their own deaths. Those who think too highly of themselves would certainly not be willing to take on a mission of that nature. So by this time, these disciples had ample reason not to think too highly of themselves. Okay. After all, they had just deserted their leader and ran away like cowards. So when Jesus was holding his hands out in front of the disciples for their view, as he told them that, as the Father has sent me, so he was sending them. He wanted to make them absolutely, he wanted to make absolutely certain that they were, there was no doubt in their minds as to what he meant uh, when he said, as the Father has sent me. Thus, the crucial need for him to have retained the visible evidence of his crucifixion. These disciples may have been a bit slow up to now, but I think this exhibition uh, would leave no doubt as to what he was expecting of them. Now, there were times when Jesus had a way of emphasizing his point so that it was simply impossible to misunderstand. So why is it so important that these disciples would be willing to die on account of their testimony that they bore to the, uh, to the death and resurrection of Christ, of their witness to that action? That's what I want to talk about for a minute. One reason is justice, divine justice, that is. In the Old Testament, you may recall that there are only a few instances when God made a personal visitation to certain individuals. And when that occurred, those individuals would, without exception, exhibit a deep sense of fear at the very thought of even being granted such a privilege. What they feared was that adequate compensation deemed worthy of such a visitation could be made sufficiently only with the payment of their own lives. For example, in Isaiah 6, having had such a vision of the Lord, Isaiah immediately cries out, Woe is unto me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King of Kings. 
the Lord of hosts. Why was there such a fearfulness in approaching the living God? Because of God's holiness and because of our sinfulness. And those two conditions are, by definition, incompatible. They cannot coexist together. It's impossible, which means that one has to go. And since God's not going anywhere, that leaves only one other option. In revealing to the disciples himself in his resurrected state, Jesus was also revealing to them something about his divinity. Up until then, while acknowledging him as the Son of God, they still did not appreciate the real significance of who Jesus was in terms of his essential equality with God. Thomas was the first to articulate more fully an understanding of that implication when Jesus finally did appear to him. You remember uh, what Thomas said on finally seeing Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, falling to his knees before him, he declared, my Lord and my God. So the disciples had, for the past three and a half years, gone everywhere with Jesus. They enjoyed the inestimable privilege of having an intimate association with him, ate with him, slept in his presence, sat at his feet, listening to his teaching, hearing him explain all of the parables, conversing freely with him, seeing him before miracle after miracle, and just observing him in all his dealings, both publicly and privately, they were taken completely into his confidence, and this was done with Christ during his earthly ministry, in his incarnate pre-resurrection state. And as such, they were granted a privilege that no one else has ever experienced, aside perhaps to a lesser degree, members of his own family. Nor would that opportunity uh, ever occur again. Therefore, it would only seem appropriate that the least they could do to re in return or which would be to lay down their very lives in service. Jesus once said, to whom, much, to whom much has been given, much will be required, and that's only to be expected. That, however, is not the primary reason why it was necessary for these disciples to have been willing to lay down their lives in order to seal their testimony and bearing witness to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. The primary reason was for us, yes, for our in our behalf, you see, we can be glad that these disciples were received with such vehement hostility. We can be very thankful that Nero and all the other Roman emperors of the day were maniacal despots fixated upon being worshipped by their subjects and that the novel notion of Jesus as Lord was radically subversive, challenging the imperial edict that Caesar alone could be Lord. So we can be glad that, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, in this life, the apostles, if they have hope only in Christ, they are of all men the most pitiable. We can be glad that there was absolutely no logical sense, there was no reasonable incentive for them to go on testifying as they did, even when they knew to do so would mean certain death. Even when that death was drawn out and made as miserable as possible, the reason for our joy is twofold. First, in that they all succeeded in resisting the temptation to recant their testimony because that demonstrates God's faithfulness in upholding them in their resolve not to give in to that temptation. That faithfulness is an assurance of the fact that God will also uphold us, those of us who find themselves in similar circumstances where they might need to follow their example, which incidentally millions of believers have done since then. Second, it's because when we ask the question, why would someone be willing to die for someone else? 
there are only a limited number of replies that can provide reasonably acceptable or re adequate answers to that. Excuse me, if the person they are dying for is already someone known to have been executed as a common criminal, that substantially reduces the number of acceptable uh, answers to that question. We all know that some people would jump at a legitimate excuse for dying simply because they find living to be too much of a pain, but most would not be willing to take such matters into their own hands because they don't know what kind of judgment awaits them afterwards. Let's face it, part of our natures is that sense of justice. So we can say that dying for someone believed to be a good person may be a reasonable thing to believe happens on occasion, and I'm sure it does. I would imagine those who do so, do so in the belief that they will be rewarded for their sacrifice. How many, however, do you suppose would ever really be willing to die for someone they knew to be a fraud, just so that they may perpetuate that treachery, and most of which has been uh, executed on themselves? Of course, the disciples were the ones, if ever there were, who were in the position to know exactly the veracity of Jesus' claims. It may be possible on rare occasions, actually, to find someone willing to die for something they know to be a lie, if they're completely mentally imbalanced, although I kind of doubt it. How much credibility would you give to the possibility that 11 or 12 perfectly sane people would have been willing to do that for fraud. This again is absolutely inconceivable. In this case, there can be no doubt about it. There's only one explanation for the empty tomb of Jesus. I, by the way, have personally visited that tomb. Most believed to have been Christ in Jerusalem declare to you today that it is indeed empty of any corpse. And that's because the Lord has risen from being counted among the dead. He has risen from the dead, ne never to die. Again, having conquered death and the grave, not only for himself, but for all who will believe, not only has he risen from the dead, but he has done so in an indisputable manner, leaving us with absolutely no other plausible explanation for the manner and the purpose of his life, his death, and his resurrection than that which we have recorded and preserved for us in the text of the Holy Scriptures. Having established, therefore, the certainty of his death and resurrection, I could go on now to elaborate on some of the many wonderful implications of his resurrection, but there is only one unavoidable implication that is necessary to consider, and that is the question of, of course, why? Why did he die? Why would he do that? Because, obviously, anyone who has within his own power to rise from the dead has within his power to deny succumbing to death in the first place. That's like asking if someone who has just lifted up a M1A1 Abrams tank, if he thought he had the strength to lift up a three-ounce paperweight. Of course he could have avoided death. So why die? Do you really think it was just because he had nothing else to do that day? Yeah, I know he certainly enjoyed pulling fast ones on his friends just to catch them off guard, but I think it's going beyond my level of comprehension to think that this is something anyone ever would ever do just to get a few laughs. Not that he didn't see a humorous side to it, but the reason alone is simply not credible. So that leaves us with only one other alternative, which is to believe the reason which not only he, but the scriptures have foretold for ages was the reason that it was necessary. It was a matter to do with something the Bible calls sin. 
Sin is a condition that has alienated us from God and which had to be dealt with before it was possible for us to once again be reconciled to God, in order for us to once again be put on good terms with God, in order for us to have fellowship with God. Jesus dealt with it in his and his blood covers it so that we may not be excluded precisely from having, being, and doing all the things which we were made to do and to be. We were made to be in unbroken fellowship with God in a dynamic, vital, deeply, and profoundly intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father. And until we are, our souls are remain or will remain restless in search of the only thing that will ever come close to satisfying that for which it craves and hungers and needs. My friend, if that is you this morning, I have good news. Every debt you've ever owed has been paid up in full by the grace of the Lord, if only you'll accept his provision for you. And he stands with arms outstretched, inviting you, lovingly begging you to come home and be reunited with him and take your rightful place in your true family, the family of God, to discover the love that awaits you. Don't delay. Don't put it off. While you may think your health is great and there is no immediate danger being called to give an account before God today. The truth is that there is no one here today or wherever you may be who is potentially any further away from eternity than one single heartbeat. One thing we all share in this life is that we never really know when our last heartbeat will occur until it happens. Even if you are not what some people call a dead man walking, everyone who is without Christ is in fact a dead person, whether they are walking, sitting, or lying. Because Besides that, we do not know when Christ will return. We only know one day he will. Today may be the day. He may come back before I finish. I may be in the middle of a word, and all of a sudden, as a, with the blinking of an eye, we are gone, caught up in the sky, those of us who know him. So for those who don't, their most urgent and pressing need is to know him. There is nothing Satan would want to have you believe more than that. That is something you can put off. That is why I believe the most perfidious doctrine ever concocted by Satan is his greatest achievement in this age is to convince people that there is some truth in the false idea of purgatory, for instance. I'm not alone in telling you. God's word tells you plainly. That's a lie. You're either in the ark or you're outside. You're either in Christ's flock or you're outside. You're either born again or you need to be. There's no second chance after death. Either Christ has borne your judgment for you, or you will bear it yourself. So if purgatory is true, then God is a liar, and the Bible is a waste of time. But God's not a liar, and the Bible is true. So it is appointed for man to die, and then to judgment. So do not roll the dice with your life. Give it to Christ fully now while you can. And you won't be sorry later. Amen. Well, that's all I have for today. Uh, you guys have any uh, questions or concerns or comments, please leave them below. And uh, this is Kim Nicolaides signing off.